I started working to take take these really big articles and shrink them down into infographics, you know, one, two pages, really simple text. Hello, welcome to the Better Outcome Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Well, hello again. Welcome to another episode of the Better Outcomes Show. I'm your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions. I am the author of Better Outcomes, a guide to humanizing healthcare, which is available now on Amazon in Kindle and paperback. And I'm excited to announce that we just got the rights to do the audiobook. So Better Outcomes, a guide to humanizing healthcare will be available on Audible, hopefully at the end of January, 2023. But if you're on the email list, you'll get notified with some discounts and we'll give away a copy and all that kind of good stuff. So look for that. Better Outcomes, a guide to humanizing healthcare. So this week we are doing a bit of a bonus episode a little bit of a shorter episode but it's covering a topic that i find interesting and hopefully you do as well we have had discussions on the show even as early back as episode two or three where we had um, darren on from creative distillery and we were talking specifically about knowledge translation. We talked about it with Bronnie Thompson and treating chronic pain and with Teal Benavides talking specifically about evidence-based practice and how long it takes current best practice or current research and literature to get into the hands of clinicians and then be used as the standard of care. So it takes an ungodly amount of time for a research study that's published today, for example, to be used as the standard of care or as go-to, if you would, um, by clinicians, by boots on the ground clinicians who are actually treating patients in the clinic every day. And it's one of those things that there is a lot of funding for in the world of research. You know, I'm, I sit on the board for uh, the National Board for Certification in Occupational Therapy, NBCOT, and we've had things floated, proposals floated our way, requests for funding and grants from uh, other organizations that are sp- specifically involved in, in research. And one of the big topics is healthcare translation. How do we cut down the time that it takes for new research or, or current research and evidence to make its way to practice? Because some studies will tell you seven years, some s- studies tell you 10 years, Whatever it is, it's often way too long. So the stuff, the interventions, the assessments even that are being used in the clinic today, by and large, tend to be older. They're not cutting edge, if you would, or they're not what the research is showing, which might not sound like a super big deal. Like if it's not wor- if it's not broken, why fix it, right? However, there are some things that we know from the literature and we get to see them as the, the studies come out that some things that were considered standard of care and best practice were actually shown to be detrimental. We've discussed this a little bit on the show again with Dr. Ian Harris when we were talking about 
surgery, the ultimate placebo. And one of the things that we talked about there was how some of our, as clinicians, our cognitive biases, if you would, prevent us from sometimes adopting new technology. So there's that whole piece. And then there's the piece of knowledge translation that is just simply getting the information into the hands of the people that need it in a way that is easily digestible and easily taken then and implemented into practice. For example, I don't know about you, but when I was a staff clinician working at a very busy outpatient specialty rehab clinic, seeing you know, 10, 11 patients a day, maybe more than that on the hand therapy day or the hand surgery follow-up days where they would just send people up to get splints fabricated. There was no way I was going to be able to sit down at lunch and read through you know, two or three or even one recently published article. There was just no way it was going to happen because I took that 20, 30 minutes to recharge, to type my notes from the morning or get them started and then get ready for the patients that were coming in in the afternoon. So the way information is being conveyed or disseminated also is a barrier to some clinicians that are working, again, boots on the ground, seeing patients every day, getting caught up in the, in the, in the business of, of being busy, of doing patient care, of actually doing patient care. So it can be very difficult. I always tell people, don't fault the clinicians. The clinicians are, they're trying to survive sometimes and they would love to do the most the most cutting edge and the most efficacious treatment and assessment out there. However, there just simply isn't the time for them to sit and review and read all of these articles that are coming out. I remember when I was at the university, one of the things that we we often talked about was how as academics, obviously our job was to disseminate information, was to teach, but it was also to be involved in, as one of uh, my former program directors said, we were getting paid to do the thinking, to do thinking, which was a, a pretty cool thing, but it can often put you in a position where you kind of look down almost on those clinicians and you say, listen, I don't know why those clinicians just aren't doing what is evidence-based now because the research has shown yada, yada, yada. Well, the reality is they just don't have the time. Maybe they don't even, they, maybe they even aren't aware that there's new evidence and research out there. So, what I thought we would do is we would talk to a another OT who's doing something interesting and she's she's working on knowledge translation for both clinicians and clients or patients at the same time. So Katie Caspero is the is an OT. She's the founder of OT Graphically. And what they do is if you're a clinician, you can sign up for their their library membership and then you get access to all the all of the infographics that they create but they basically take research the best practices in research on the intervention side of things so treatment side now this is specifically for occupational therapists but you know hopefully something like this starts growing in other other disciplines as well and uh, and like i said this was just an interesting conversation about somebody doing something interesting around evidence-based practice and resources in in my own field of, of study and practice. So um, if you know somebody else doing something similar in, say, orthopedics or neurology or something like that, shoot, send them my way. We'll get them on the show too. But what they do is they create infographics that are simple, short, to the point, and 
translate the knowledge about what the current research says regarding X intervention for pediatrics, for example, or for carpal tunnel, or um, for mindfulness and stress reduction, and all of that kind of stuff. And they create these infographics, and then the, the clinicians are able to use these in the clinic to educate clients and educate patients. And then sometimes, obviously, they themselves are being exposed to um, what is current evidence? What is the best practice out there? So we have a discussion specifically around th this idea of using graphic design and uh, infographics and bite-sized chunks. How do we break down the kind of this vast, big, thick, sometimes ornerous reading of a, of a, of a research study and convert it into something that's aesthetically pleasing <laughs> and attractive and memorable that makes sure that the the reader or the recipient of that information holds on to that information because that's part of knowledge translation right we don't just want to disseminate the information we want it to be assimilated and used in practice so without further ado here is katie caspero from ot graphically talking about using graphic design and infographics for knowledge translation well hey katie welcome to the show how are you i'm doing well rafi how are you I am doing all right, doing wonderful. Um, I'm excited about talking really about using visual imagery to convey, you know, clinically important information to patients and clients. Uh, but before we do that, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your background, and then kind of what brought you to doing what you're doing at OT Graphically. Yeah, well, my name's Katie Caspero. I have been a pediatric occupational therapist in the Pittsburgh area for about almost eight years now. Um, I really love research and I was a research assistant and uh, since I could be uh, like my sophomore year. Um, and I knew I wanted to be involved in research in some way, but I knew I needed that clinical expertise to really understand what was actually going to be beneficial. So, um, what ended up happening was I saw that there was a gap between people having time to stay up to date, as well as knowing what was evidence-based just by, you know, having a 10 hour day in the clinic and then getting home and just like eating and going to bed. Um, and that was kind of all you had. So um, that's where I came up with the idea for OT graphically, where um, I have a love for art and design and photography as well. So I took that hobby and I said, what if I can blend my love of research, really art and science, um, and I started working to take take these really big articles and shrink them down into infographics, you know, one, two pages, really simple text uh, with images that really just got to the point of like, okay, what is what did they do in this study and why is that important for me and how do I use this information? So that's how OT Graphically was born during the pandemic when I had extra time because my caseload <laughs> was cut in half. Um, that really... Uh, uh, springboarded the idea forward just to have that time. So right now we have, um, I do one-on-one -on -one design. So kind of like a graphic designer of research, but I've really shifted to also having a membership site called the OT Graphically Library, where I bring together occupational therapists uh, to help them quickly and effectively stay up to date and utilize the latest research so they can provide the best care. So we do that using these infographics, as well as online journal clubs and discussions. And then we also have a course to help them stay, um, remember, you know, what, how to do that process of becoming evidence-based. Nice. So are the bulk of your, your clients that you're working with then, are they clinicians or uh, organizations that are looking at 
kind of getting information out there or are they a bunch of clinicians looking themselves to find evidence-based resources for their own treatments and their own um, clinical practice? I would say right now I have a few big organizations I work with just from a design standpoint, but mostly are clinicians that really want to get the information of the research and then also share that with their clients in a way that's um, effective and engaging. Yeah. And I'm sure you probably know a little bit more about this than I do, but infographics tend to be, I mean, they go viral on, on social media all the time. You'll see people sharing them and all that kind of stuff. How much do you know how effective they are at really communicating or conveying information? And if, if so, like how much more effective is it to see something visually like, okay, this is a diagram or whatever, versus like, obviously reading a journal article is not the most stimulating thing in the world, in the world for some people. Yeah. I should probably have a number for this, but yeah. I know right now it takes, <laughs> it takes 14 years for research to be yeah. actually utilized in practice. And so there's been a lot of research on translate knowledge translation, which is what this, this process is. Um, but there's a lot of research that infographics, um, improve the speed at which you uptake information and use the information. So, um, that is definitely a, a huge, you know, benefit to turn around. So, our goal really at OT graphically, our mission is to reduce that timeline to five years of Ooh. putting research into practice, which is a lofty goal, but you got to yeah. aim big. <laughs> yeah. Aim big. Um, yeah, I think we had somebody on the show probably two years ago and he's a, he runs a marketing firm and their whole job is, is knowledge translation, like working with public health folks to try to do this. And he talked a lot about the importance of visual visual ways of communicating information. So it very much is kind of in the same line. Um, I wonder, so what's your, what's your process? And let's say um, an organization says we want, you know, our OT department to do more evidence-based uh, treatment in this area, call it sensory integration, call it whatever. Do you go then and like find the articles for them or do they come to you with what they want and then you're kind of just synthesizing it and putting it in a in a pretty graphical you know methodology for for uptake yeah so our membership is very member driven content okay. so whatever they say is what i do i don't really pick unless nobody's asking me for anything, but that rarely, I have a very long list, so that doesn't usually happen, but yeah. So a lot of times we also have something called evidence maps. So, um, which is kind of like a spider web of research. So that's kind of the first thing I do. I make these maps of, you know, what's the evidence out there, what works basically, and what are the interventions and things that they can easily find, you know, the articles. And that's more so for like, if you need to show into insurance that this is an effective intervention that, you know, you're already doing, you just need the, the support behind yeah. it. Um, so that's one way of, of doing it, but then yeah, the, the, um, the members of, um, you know, of a whole business can come into our membership and they would, you know, really decide, okay, these are the journal club topics we would like to have, or an infographic we'd like to have, and I'd add it to our list. And I would review um, articles about it that are within five years of uh, publication, because again, we're trying to turn around that timeline. So that's actually a really big part of it. There are articles obviously that are older, that are much more beneficial. So like we will make an exception to that, but yeah. So we read through the article, outline it and really, um, then I, I actually go back to the original author to make sure the information is represented clearly, because it's really important for me that these authors that did that information and did all that research, spent their lives doing their yeah. dissertation on this, this one topic, 
really they're the one driving what, how this information is presented. So that's also another big point. I really, um, it's really a way to help the authors disseminate their information too. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, like I'm assuming you get a pretty high response rate when you reach out to the authors. Has, has mm -hmm. there ever been anybody that's like, oh no, I don't want you to do a infographic on my article. <laughs> I think not really, unless they didn't really understand what I was asking. Not, not so much, but um, yeah, they're always very, very willing. Um, and I let them, you know, use it to their, to their needs. And um, they actually usually, you know, have done journal clubs for us as well. So it's a very much like a give and take um, opportunity. And it's a really a win-win for us because then the authors are able to just like really answer their questions kind of on the spot. So as much as possible, I try to include them in the process. Yeah. And you do, so you do journal clubs as a part of this then, huh? Mm -hmm. And yep. how does that work? Is it just, you send an email out, this is the the topic we're covering this mm -hmm. month or how, how often, how frequently? Yeah, we do them like two, one to two times a month, uh, depending on the month. Uh, the season's a little slower because of the yeah. holidays, but yeah, we try to do one adult and one pediatric um, a month. And yeah, we, we, you know, those are member requested topics and uh, we use infographics to help that discussion. So that way you don't have to read the whole article. You just read the infographic and you get a good idea of what's going on. So that's kind of how, cause I remember being in journal clubs and I'm like reading it, you yeah. know, five minutes before the, the actual journal club. So it's really, really to shrink down that time and really get to the point of journal clubs, which is the discussion part. So, um, and just like, okay, great. But how do we use this information? Should we use this information? Is it, um, is the article biased? Is it, you know, is it the people who are, have this product trying to promote it? You know, the, all those really important questions come up. Yeah. And then tell me a little bit about just the process of designing one of these infographics. Mm -hmm. Like what are the, what are the big things that are in your mind when you're putting something like this together? Are there like pieces of obviously like you want the research, you want the conclusions and the findings and all that, but just talk to me a little bit about your process for kind of structuring the layout of one of these infographics on a specific article or topic or something like that. Yeah, I definitely think like, okay, who's my audience? Who's reading this? What do they need to know? So I, I try my best to make it for like the end result, which is the client um, and the OT. So that way it can kind of be a two for one, but sometimes it kind of hits just the OT because it doesn't really make sense for the client to know, like, the psychometric properties of this assessment. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's really, I really think about the audience first and, you know, put myself in their shoes. I'm a very empathetic person. So I use that skill, uh, pretty frequently to say, okay, what, what would I need to know if I have a client in front of me that is, is, uh, struggling with this or when we really focus just on interventions, to be honest, like, cause that's really as clinicians, what the bulk of what we need to know, what interventions work and what doesn't work and how do we use it? Yeah. And then do, so you think about the audience and then you structure it. Mm -hmm. Is there a specific, um, layout that works as far mm -hmm. as like this part comes up here at the top and this part will come here in the middle, or is it kind of dependent on the, the subject matter and the available articles? Maybe you're doing two or three articles in one infographic instead of one. Yeah, I kind of keep the basic structure structure of like the scientific process, to be honest. So like a background, you know, we know a lot of the background, but sometimes that's helpful <clears throat> just to get the context, you know, what they did and did it work. So that's kind of the structure. Um, and then maybe like a few takeaways, you know, if you learn one thing, 
bottom line, this is what you should know from yeah. this information. Yeah. And then are they, are these infographics being used by, I mean, obviously they're being used by clinicians to, to learn and read more about the interventions, but have you seen folks uh, using them like on social media and trying to promote them through their own clinic or something like that to educate the population at large? Yeah, for sure. That's definitely a, a big part. Um, you know, if people have a blog or something, you know, we let them share it that way. Um, <clears throat> yeah, just kind of any any advocacy to help with health literacy and health education is really important to us. So um, I just think about all the times where I was given a piece of paper that's like full of text at the end of appointment. And I was like, what, yeah. what just happened in the last hour? <laughs> but to have something that's like really tangible that you might even like hang on your fridge or, you know, um, really save on your desktop and, and go back to is, can be really powerful. So yeah, I'd say, um, using them to, you know, even I use them, to, I print them out. Cause I feel like people, to be honest, recently, like a digital file, there's just, we have so many digital files. Yeah. So having something as a paper Overload. copy is actually a little more meaningful right now. Um, and I, I had a, a client, for example, who, um, she, she was struggling with auditory sensitivity. So one of the articles was talking about that and it really like, she was just so interested in like the science behind it. She was very, very smart. Um, older, older child I was working with. And it really, I, it, it definitely changed the course of her care of like her motivation behind like, oh, okay, I see why you're doing this activity with me. It's because you, you know, of that article and that's why. So it, it definitely helps like having that, for you to feel confident in what you're doing works, but also to, you know, bring the patient on board and, and let them know, like, this is why there's research and it. it's not misinformation. It's, it's solid information. Yeah. No, I think that's huge. It's, especially, you know, in the, in the pain space too, a lot of times patients feel like, you know, they don't, they've, they're told maybe that their, their MRI is totally normal. So they shouldn't be feeling pain. And like, that's just one of those areas that recently people have been exploring okay the importance of showing like validating the the patient or the client's experience and then use if you have research to show it it just makes it all that more powerful to for clients they can step into that role of okay what i'm you know this is this is real and now we can kind of tackle this problem or overcome this obstacle right yeah it kind of takes the emotion out of it yeah and in, in when it needs to be you know you need emotion often with therapy but it, it helps you them take the, the, the emotion out of that conversation. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Um, well, I always ask this near the end here. Um, if there are just one or two main takeaways, you would want a listener to, to kind of come away with from, from this conversation about, um, maybe it's about infographics, maybe it's about, um, knowledge translation in general, what would they be? That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm just trying to not do more than two because that's usually oh, my yeah. MO. Um, I would say there's power in giving education to your clients and um, in the way that the word using the words that they use and in the way that they learn. That's really important. And then staying up to date is how our profession will be able to be valuable in the future. So really knowing this evidence is not really an option. We really need yeah. to be aware of it because there are others trying to do OT because they realize how great it is. And not that, you know, 
it's a turf war, but it's really important to really understand what works and what, what we know and know our expertise and be confident in that. I think we can lose our confidence over time and, um, evidence-based practice is not scary. It is, um, a, a tool and it's very empowering too. Yeah. No, I think that's super important. I tell people all the time, either students that come through the clinic or when I used to teach at the university and now with, with clients, I'm like, your main benefit, the main value you bring to any interaction with a patient or a client is not what you do with your hands or the exercise you make them do in the clinic. It's the fact that you have all of this great knowledge and then you're able to take that knowledge and kind of like bring it to bear on their specific situation. And part of that means you need to know what's out there, right? You need to know the the evidence and how to implement it because that's really where our value comes into play. So that's awesome. Um, where can people find out more about you, about OT Graphically, and maybe even working with you and having you do some designs for them? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah sorry. <laughs> Hold on. I'm going to drink some tea really quick before I answer that Sure. <clears throat> so you can find out more about us at otgraphically.com. That's our website where you can find more information on our membership or if you need uh, any design services. That's the best way. Awesome. Cool deal. Well, Katie, thanks so much. Have a good one. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Katie Caspero talking about knowledge translation and using graphic design and infographics and the World Wide Web, the interwebs to disseminate and participate in knowledge translation. I think going back and just listening to the conversation again, the point comes up a lot and I've mentioned it on the podcast several times. I know I mentioned it on the book because I'm doing the audio recording for for the audio book and I've read it several times already. I'm like, man, I wonder if I said that enough. Yes, I did. <laughs> but the importance just reiterating the importance of knowledge translation as a as the function of what we do as healthcare providers and clinicians now obviously we were having a, a conversation on the ot side of things because we're both occupational therapists but this definitely applies to whatever clinical discipline or specialty in which you practice the fact that as a clinician your technical skills are not necessarily your highest value or the highest value that you bring to any patient engagement. What I like to say is that we as clinicians possess very specialized knowledge and clinical skills, and it's very, it's, it has a wide breadth, right? We have a wide array of research articles and textbooks and expertise from just practicing in the clinic, clinical expertise. And our ability or the ability of the clinician to take that wide breadth of technical knowledge and apply it to a client's specific situation is really where our, our value lies as clinicians. It's not the fact that we can do XYZ treatment. It's the fact that we know XYZ treatment is the best option for this patient. So when we think about the importance of not only understanding what is current best practice or what the evidence suggests we should do in a certain situation, but being able to implement that and then explain it to the clients, to the patients, that's really where you become the next level clinician, if you would. 
those clinicians that are able to not only make a clinical decision, implement a clinical decision that, that brings positive benefits to their patients and clients, but also a clinician that is able to then explain it to those clients and patients so that their patients and clients find that treatment valuable. Um, again, just just thinking about this now because I'm doing a lot of the, the reading and recording for the audiobook, one of the points that I make in chapter seven of the book, I believe, when we talk about the difference between a fee-for-service model and value-based service is that Again, the value we bring to the table is our clinical expertise, and we are in a world where the technical implementation or the actual hands-on doing of treatment, whatever that is, um, could be physical therapy, occupational therapy, could be even some primary care and specialty work. Those technical aspects in and of themselves are becoming very commoditized, and we do live in a world with AI coming down the pike, you know, um, what is it, chat GPT or whatever can can give you the answers for the exercises, the best exercises for the shoulder or something like that, right? So what's to keep patients and clients from using exclusively resources that don't involve a clinician? Well, it should involve, or the the reason that they will continue to need actual clinicians is the fact that we have the ability not just to spit out an answer or regurgitate an answer, but we have the ability to look at this unique individual with their unique set of circumstances, again, taking a biopsychosocial approach, which we very much advocate for at this podcast. Um, the taking a biopsychosocial approach and understanding that the best four exercises for the shoulder, let's just stick with that example, are going to work for about 50% of the people, right? And that's great. Some people will, will do these, the four best exercises and they'll never have shoulder problems again. A vast majority of those people, that, however, have some other kind of comorbidity or some other psychosocial component that's going to affect their recovery. And our value as clinicians is not that we know those four exercises, it's the fact that we can take a look at this individual in the circumstances of their life and their situation and then tailor that program, the home program, the treatment plan, whatever you, you end up using, the intervention that is selected or the modification to that intervention and tailor it to that individual in order for that individual to achieve the best, most effective and positive outcomes possible. So again, I don't, I don't see any of these AI or robots or whatever taking or replacing clinicians because at the end of the day, healthcare is a human experience, which means obviously there are going to be people that want to form a relationship with clinicians and leverage that uh, relationship to improve clinical outcomes and health and all of that. And that's great and wonderful. And that piece is going to be there for sure. The other aspect of that is that we are able to to understand, to empathize, to look at that client's individual situation and then tailor the treatment to them, which is the value in and of itself. The treatment is not so much the value. It's the ability to, one, arrive at that treatment, but then to tailor it to that individual. So that's all I've got to say about that. If you like the show, head on over to iTunes, leave us a rating and review. It helps people find us. And um, if you want to be part of the conversation, we do have a group on Facebook 
look us up on, uh, I think it's called the Better Outcomes Group. <laughs> uh, fill out the questions, we'll let you in. And if you have a, a topic recommendation for the show and you want uh, us to cover something or have somebody on, maybe you or a colleague is doing something interesting in healthcare, maybe it's research, maybe it's uh, developing some kind of tool or innovating some area of practice, reach out to us, info, I-N-F-O, at rehabupracticesolutions.com. Uh, reach out and let us know what you want the show to be on, and we'll, we'll go from there. Um, until the next time, folks, be safe, be healthy. I will talk to you then. Thanks for listening to The Better Outcome Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients, helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www.RehabUPracticeSolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.